and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we're dealing with a critically important part of the energy transition. While we all rightly celebrate the rapid deployment of solar panels and electric vehicles, we don't always think about the materials demands of that revolution. Are we going to be able to supply the natural resources needed for the energy transition? What are the market forces driving the impending supply crunch? How much of a role does China really play in the supply chain? How can the metals and mining sector clean up its own act on carbon and governance? Exploring these areas today is Abel Martins Alexandra, Managing Director and Head of Energy, Infrastructure and Industrials at Lloyd Banking Group and formerly Group Treasurer at Rio Tinto. With close to 30 years of experience in the sector and an MBA from LBS, Abel is a sharp, thoughtful speaker with a depth of experience that's second to none. A passionate believer in the need for the energy transition, this conversation on what must be done to get there is one you won't want to miss. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. First of all, thank you so much for joining us here, you know, out here in no, the thanks, Chris. Yeah, wonderful London Business School for hosting us to uh, have this you know, really, really super conversation. No, that's great to be here. Uh, you know, it's great to be back at London Business School. Mm-hmm. Uh, both you and I are alumni here. That's the first time in this beautiful building. But first, I could talk a little, little bit about yourself. You've had a really interesting career, um, kind of spanning um, commodities, industrials, finance, uh, currently MD at uh, Lloyds Banking Group. Could you tell us a little bit, a little bit about, about your path up until this point? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm Portuguese by background, grew up in France, um, went for a first job in Brazil, working for a bank at the time, took me to South Africa, then to to Paris, uh, covering uh, um, Russia and what we used to call at the time CIS countries, so Central Asia. Um, from there, uh, I moved to, uh, to a mining company, to Rio Tinto, where I spent uh, 15 years, wonderful experience. And uh, now, almost two years ago, I switched back to banking, uh, where now I am managing director and head of uh, infrastructure, energy, and industrials at Lloyd's Banking Group. Uh, so I would say I'm not the best uh, advisor when it comes to career. My own choices were certainly led by, uh, uh, by uh, personal circumstances and instinct. Um, and I, I'm very grateful for the career I've had. Uh, we, we had uh, Tara Schmitz, your wonderful colleague, on uh, last year. She's wonderful. She is wonderful. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, the intricacies of ESG and banking. But maybe if you could just give us a, kind of a, an update, what have been the big developments? There have been a few big developments in, in the whole ESG and banking space. Yeah, that's right. It's been an incredibly busy year. I mean, you know, it's been... It's been uh, a year of, um, of, uh, of mixed feelings, really. We have progressed a lot in, uh, in a number of fronts. Well, first, the investments in renewables have now outstripped uh, uh, investments in oil and gas, which is, which is really pleasing, really good. I think the cost, uh, the levelite cost of, of, uh, of energy, wind and solar, is now lower than, than it is for other energy sources in most instances in most countries. So that's really good. There is an increased impetus uh, for, uh, uh, for financial institutions uh, and, and, and organizations at large to implement more credible transition plans. And the dialogues are very much about having an impact 
beyond what was seen before as a, as a compliance exercise, which some may have thought ESG was all about. But I think it's much more entrenched now. Um, and, uh, and we have to be very pleased with the, the fact that uh, uh, partners at large, institutions, uh, corporates, policymakers are leaning in much more into how we solve this very complex problem. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's also been a very difficult year. Um, no, ESG has become relatively politicized uh, in the US, uh, potentially also in the UK now, in other, in other parts of the world. And that's very unfortunate because I think the last thing we need is politics getting involved in what needs to be a, an accelerated pace of change for the transition. Uh, that's number one. Number two, of course, uh, geopolitical tensions are increasing uh, supply chain disruptions. And, um, and, and that's, that's really difficult because it creates bottlenecks, which are already relatively high. It also probably increase, increases what I think is an inflationary environment for energy transition for longer than we, we believe it might be. Um, there, is, uh, there is one positive I need to highlight, of course, uh, which, uh, which I think is structurally important for all of us and for policymakers to, to think about, is what has happened in the US with uh, the significant push uh, towards much more investments on the back of, uh, of course, Inflation Reduction Act and another set of incentive measures. I, I think we're, we're very much focusing in on the, the E of the ESG and that's in, the, in this, this mm. conversation. One of the main issues about the whole ESG area, and particularly there's been a lot of attention drawn on it particularly this year, um, is, the, is how you measure. How can you compare and make sure that, that two companies are doing similar things? How do you measure the other, the non-carbon you know, element of ESG? Mm. Um, where do you see that, you know, that evolving now? Yes, I think, uh, I mean, the, the entire data piece, uh, measurement, assessment of emissions and other aspects of ESG is, uh, is complex. Um, there's, there's, there's no standardization. I mean, one should be pleased with the standards that have been issued by the International uh, Sustainability Standard Boards, but clearly it's not enough for it to be fully embedded. Um, we need more consistency and more common standards across the board. Um, but at the same time, we should not be um, blinded by the fact that that's only one part of the problem. Uh, we'd rather measure, of course, as accurately as, accurately as possible than not. Uh, and that's where uh, a number of stakeholders, including financial institutions, are trying to are trying to support getting better data, more comprehensive data, um, and and comparing uh, this uh, the emissions, for example, from one business to another, and and draw the right questions. Data or measurement is never the answer in itself. It prompts insights and prompts conversation and prompts action. We should not be blinded by by data or by a model. Uh, no, uh, data is not necessarily evidence. What's really necessary, I think, is to get into, into, um, into measuring much more um, and, uh, and have the right conversations about the pathway towards, uh, towards decarbonizing or transitioning away from, uh, from fossil fuels or, or the footprint that any given business would have today. Uh, so that's only one part of the equation, really, I think. The other part is how do we, uh, how do we move away from believing that targets are a strategy? targets in, in themselves and, and never a strategy for ESG or for any other matter. So I think that's where the credible transition plans um, come into, uh, into place. That's where the transition plan task force set up by the UK government and the FCA uh, comes into play. We really need to make sure that uh, we have the, the right ambition, uh, we have the right actions that support them with the right plan, but also the right accountability model, the right governance. 
Um, and as credible transition plans are implemented, I think we will, uh, we will see more, uh, more progress towards transition. Uh, but it's a journey, clearly. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's much, much more work to do to, to that effect. Okay. There's a lot of kind of fundamental paradoxes within the um, metals and mining energy, energy transition. Mm. Um, so, like for example, the energy transition is both uh, urgent, but we are not doing enough about it. It's a great opportunity, financial opportunity, but it's underinvested. You have written quite a lot on your on the possibility that an energy transition might actually be be kind of net value um, destructive, yes. and you've also kind of made comments about it being uh, about us requiring a warlike setting, but broadening it out from beyond just a just a warlike setting for for what we need to do, but also you know with the, the potential destruction you know of, of, of assets and, and whatever else. Would you like to talk a little about your your thinking there? Well, listen, I think we, we live in, a, as I mentioned earlier on, in a world where ESG has become more and more politicized, and that's really unhelpful. Uh, we, you know, we often, all of us, have conversations where we, we, we try to strike the balance between, uh, between the, the, the dogmatists and the dissidents, you know, the doomists and the deniers. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's not about being optimistic or pessimistic, it's about being determined to change. Um, um, and, no, the, the next best alternative doesn't look good. Uh, so that's, that's one aspect uh, to it. The, the other aspect, I think we are often lacking a fundamental strategic conversation about uh, the topic, be it oil and gas, be it uh, uh, critical minerals and the role of, uh, fundamental role that mining and metals play, be it uh, the way we, we consume, uh, etc. I think uh, uh, as we look at the, at, the, uh, at the fundamentals of the transition, we need to understand uh, the unconvenient truth that it's very costly. It will be net value destructive. Now, the alternatives are even more net value destructive. <laughs> In other words, um, the cost of transitioning away from a, an economy, uh, an energy system as it stands today, to a different one cannot be but um, quite significant. Um, uh, because we are replacing installed capital which has been installed for many, many decades by a new set of capital, a set of capital that has been depreciated to a large extent with a new set of capital that has not been depreciated. Uh, and we are doing that with a, with a demand that is not changing fast enough. Um, and we are doing that in a context where monetary policy uh, is, uh, has become more restrictive. There's also not enough investments that are going into, into this. Uh, so where is the money going to come from? Um, you know, it has to come from, from somewhere. And at the macroeconomic level, it's uh, fundamentally through increased savings, which themselves have to happen either through increased interest rates or through a tax burden. Uh, and that is value destructive over the short to medium term. And it also creates a decrease in purchasing power for, for most people. So, of course, there's a significant opportunity for businesses uh, and, uh, uh, and for stakeholders at large. Uh, and we have no choice but to lean into this because the alternatives are far, far more value destroying. But I don't think there's a sense of urgency, number one, in really understanding the magnitude of the issue, the magnitude of the cost of it. Um, and number two, in actually ensuring that we understand that the next best alternatives are even more value destructive. Uh, clearly, I'm a finance person, so looking at, him, at it in terms of NPV, 
um, makes you makes you think that actually it's not that bad. Uh, but we, we get to a, two fundamental points. Number one, do we have the incentive prices to the hypertrophic metals uh, captured so that investment is fundamentally uh, uh, increased? And, and number two, are we pricing the risk uh, effectively? Um, and the answer to both questions is no. Uh, and that's where I think the conundrum uh, uh, happens. Uh, the last point I would say, which is also an inconvenient truth that we, we know about, but, but we, we probably don't see in, uh, reflected enough in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in policy making, is demand. How do we change demand mm -hmm. uh, so that we, uh, you and I and everyone else, um, uh, becomes more aware of what we consume, the price of what we consume, the, the impact uh, of what we consume in terms of in terms of uh, climate change, uh, so that our the behaviors change more, more quickly. Uh, the market response is very clear. No, the, the 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 supply is is still responding to to the demand. So we we need to stay into the the demand much more actively, and policymakers have to uh, to lean into it much much actively. I think. Uh, so moving on slightly now to, to into the, like the, the core of the conversation, kind of metals, metals and mining. Um, we have been very quick to celebrate, um, you know, the amount of EVs on the roads, the amount of solar panels that, that, that are going up, um, the you know, a very large amount of like large wind turbines being being put being put offshore. Like there's some kind of significant steps forwards uh, happening in yes. the uh, in the renewable energy market, but. We're not really focusing in on the components of those mm. particular uh, technologies. One of your kind of favorite hashtags is no metals, no transition, That's uh, right. which, which, which gets, gets attached to, to a lot of what you, what you write. Um, would you like to kind of explain that? Why are metals and mining so important to the energy transition? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm, I'm not the author of that uh, hashtag. I, uh, I borrowed it from. Uh, from uh, from Julian Kettle at Wood Mackenzie, uh, I must uh, I must say, which I think is fundamentally true, right? No metals on transition is uh, is fundamentally true, and we need to create a heightened sense of urgency in regards to the awareness uh, of uh, of the, the bottleneck we have there. I mean, we will need um, twice as much copper uh, by 2030 than what we are producing today. We'll need four times as much nickel. We'll need uh, I think it's two or three times as much cobalt. We'll need a significantly increased supply of uranium also for uh, for nuclear power. If nuclear power is uh, is a solution chosen by uh, by uh, by some countries, um, and uh, and of course we need more more lithium. But uh, uh, and we need more graphite. We need more rare earth uh, elements. And by the way, we need also twice, if not three times, as much steel. Uh, steel now made out of iron ore and today carbon. And because we don't. Uh, and by the way, we don't have a green steel technology fully proven. There's only one green steel mill, I think, in Sweden uh, nowadays, and many companies are looking at it today. So we need significantly uh, more supply of metals and critical minerals uh, so that we, uh, we have a higher volume of batteries, of course. That's, that, that's what catches the attention. Um, but so that also uh, windmills um, are built, so that we rebuild buildings in an emissions-efficient way, um, uh, but also, also so that we electrify the grid. All of it requires significant amounts of copper. Um, aluminum is also absolutely required, and, and there are, there's, there's more um, uh, green aluminum now than there, than there was, but we need more aluminum coming out of bauxite, the, the mining of bauxite and the, and the refining of, uh, of alumina. 
um, and the investments are not falling through. And there are a number of reasons to, to, to that effect. Um, number one, I think uh, the, mining, uh, the, mine, the large mining companies have been burnt 10 years ago or so by a, a significant uh, splash of capital uh, and uh, a number of ill-fated decisions, uh, out of which they had to, 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 to do a number of write-backs and create much more discipline uh, promoted by the shareholders in regards to capital allocation framework. And we will have seen now uh, the, the mining companies actually increasing the investments uh, towards uh, transition, but still in, uh, in, uh, in amounts that are much lower than what they were 10 years ago. As a paradox, uh, and depending on the mining company, but no, the, the top three are investing between 7 and, and $12 billion per year. Um, and 10 years ago, some were investing at, pro, uh, at CapEx programs of uh, 18 to, to $20 billion a year. Uh, as a paradox, where incentive prices were actually, uh, were actually uh, better at the time than they, than they are now also. So, uh, so that's, that's, that's interesting. I think the shareholders uh, of, the, of the large mining companies have really imposed a certain discipline on, on these companies, and which I think is the right thing to do. Um, uh, but it also says that the incentive prices are not, are not, are not sufficient, number one. Number two, um, projects are, are getting even more so complex. Now, grades are depleting uh, across, the, uh, across, uh, across the world, across the main resources. And we're talking about very, very large uh, uh, resources, very large projects, which not many companies are capable of doing. Uh, actually, only a very handful. We need the equivalent of uh, probably two, um, two Oyutolgoi mines per year to meet the demand in the, uh, uh, for copper in, 20, in 2030. And these projects are extremely, extremely complex. Uh, only the best uh, mining companies, just a handful of them, can, de can develop these, these projects. You need more people, you need more project managers, you need more geologists, you need more rock engineers. And they, are, they come in short supply. Of course, you need more, um, more, uh, more uh, people also who can, uh, who can partner with governments. And you need the right policy setup. You need to partner with these governments. And these, uh, uh, and these are conversations that take a very, very long time on the overground issues are as important as the underground issues, and rightly so, because at the end of the day, mining companies um, are, are hosted by, uh, by, by, the, by communities, and they, they need to have a net impact for the communities also. Water is a fundamental issue in many, many countries, uh, and water uh, is scarce, and, uh, and how do you price it adequately? So I think the issues are, are, are very, very tangible, and will become more, more tangible, as we see it, for example, uh, for, uh, for, um, for offshore wind, where you know, the bottlenecks are, are now really evident. Uh, and for EV, for electric vehicles and the batteries, where bottlenecks are, are being seen even more than, than they used to. So for all the discussions around chips and the, the scarcity of chips, which is, which is true, there's a broader conversation about the scarcity of metals, which I think is going to hit, um, no, hit all of us, I suppose, more, in a more meaningful way in the next, next couple of years, if not before. Yeah, no, that's a brilliant overview of the, of the whole area. Um, before we kind of dig, uh, dig down into a few little, little kind of more, more the specifics in each of those kind of big, big broad, uh, broad brush headlines uh, you, you were outlining there. Is there any, um, just out of curiosity, any particular um, elements or metal that is underreported? We all know we hear about copper and cobalt and lithium, but is there anything else that's that's from your experience to say no? That's just, this is something we need to be talking more about because this is something that's really that's really going to cause a problem. Yeah, I think um, the U.S. Department of Energy, I think, has listed, uh, if I'm not mistaken. 
around 20 critical minerals. European Union has listed 14 critical minerals. Uh, the UK has, has, has a list of around 12 critical minerals, if I'm not mistaken again. Um, so th there's, there's a list there, but they are not all um, uh, equal, in, uh, if, if I can put it this way. For copper, aluminum, nickel, uh, steel, which is no, a, transformed, uh, a transformed product already, are all absolutely critical and they, are, uh, and they have the, this particularity of being, uh, coming from very, very large resources. Um, uh, and they are relatively large markets. You have, um, um, and in particular, on the base metals are traded, they are fungible markets, so you have pricing discovery that's much easier than other products that are also critical, other metals, cobalt, very critical. Then you, of course, have the rare earth's elements, which are nothing but rare, by the way. They're just quite complex to extract, and they, they so happen to be often in the wrong locations from a geopolitical point of view. Um, uh, they are equally important, but they are relatively smaller markets. We, everyone talks about lithium, very, very interesting market. Uh, no, the jury is still out as per whether as what is the right uh, technology for batteries, most of them containing uh, lithium, but the jury is still out also as per whether no, we get the, the price forecasts uh, right because looking at the uh, looking at the cost curve, I think it's a quite steep uh, cost curve, uh, which means you know that, uh, which means volatility uh, in, in simplified terms. Um, so they are and they are important, critical, but relatively smaller markets. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is actually the, the processing and manufacturing of minerals, which we often forget because, of course, we think about critical minerals as being commodities. Um, yes, to some extent, they are, uh, but they go through a significant uh, value chain, a significant complex value chain, uh, and the, 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 the processing and manufacturing of these critical minerals and metals into into products that then you know, electrify the grid, go into the batteries, go into the houses, etc. No, uh, is, is of critical importance. So bottlenecks may happen there too. No, we, we all know that uh, rare, uh, rare earth elements, lithium also, uh, no, uh, have a, have a pro uh, processing manufacturing footprint that is very, very concentrated in, uh, you know, in, in China and also uh, for the batteries in, in a handful of companies, actually four companies only. Uh, that creates situations of bottleneck. You know, the most of the processing of nickel happens in China too. So we, we need to understand the value chain much better to, to reassess where the bottlenecks are and how we create resilience uh, around, uh, around uh, the supply of these, uh, of these, uh, of these metals. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you've done done a great job in outlining the the increase in demands and why why that happens. Um, can we dig a little bit more into this this whole supply side area of it. So the first question is the obvious question is um, in a world where we've got an assumption of perpetual growth yes, <laughs> and yes. a planet that is not that has finite resources. At what point do we start to run out? Like we've seen like core, we've seen ore um, grades falling. At what point do we start to run out? And is that something you need to worry about short, medium, or even long term? Um, so I'm uh, I'm not expert enough on the topic to have a, a good answer. I suppose uh, we've been running out of uh, oil and gas for many many decades. Uh, we've been running out of uh, other um, uh, of no of food. Uh, no, in the past we used to run out of food also. Uh, we run out of many natural resources for, for, for long, and the life of a natural resource 
can be 10 years or 15 years for, for many decades. So I think we, we really have to put things into, into perspective. Uh, I think the, the question is where can we access uh, uh, in the quickest way, in the cheapest way, in the most sustainable way, the resources that we need, that the world needs. Um, and of course, we would be concerned, I suppose, as a society by, for example, deep sea mining, uh, uh, which is best left to, to, uh, to, the, no, to the large mining companies that are really, really serious and are really uh, extremely well intended and have strong, stringent controls in place. Uh, but even that, no, I'm not an expert enough to actually uh, qualify as per whether that's the right route to go. Uh, but the fact that we are looking at deep sea mining uh, uh, is, uh, you know, epitomizes the fact that we have very expensive resources out there, either because they are expensive to extract or because the grades are relatively uh, weak or because they're in locations that are not, um, are not uh, palatable from, a, from an environmental point of view, from a political point of view, from a reputation point of view. Uh, I think there's something to be said about technology, of course, and recycling. Uh, technology uh, keeps, on, uh, keeps on improving. I mean, the, the way we extract copper today is, uh, is very different uh, than, than it used to be. Uh, and there are you know, not only the large many companies, but a number of tech companies are looking at better ways of extracting um, and recovering metals out of the same ore. Uh, there's lots of technologies trying to recover even more metal out of tailings, which are in a sense the, no, the, the waste out of the mining process. Um, and of course, recycling of metal. Um, there, there is much, much more that can be done. I think these, these two avenues, uh, and there, there will be others, but technology improvements, uh, as well as uh, increased recovery uh, and recycling are are fundamental and, and much more investment is going into this uh, and there are better ways of looking at uh, looking at increasing the production than than ways that are probably much less sustainable yeah no that's that's a, it's a very appealing idea the idea that which has been floated around the European Union quite a lot that the electric vehicles that are driving around the roads are little little mines with all with lots of materials that's that are right. needed for the next electric electric vehicle that's right um, do you want like what's your your feel of how uh, how that's going to progress is this is it like how much can you take in from an existing battery and take it into the next one and how close are we to be able to make that that circular what i think uh, i think all the, the automotive industry uh, is is looking to that um, I think that uh, given the fact that uh, the, the value uh, of an electric vehicle uh, stems apart from the marketing premium and, and, and the increased size of the vehicles, which is unfortunate, stems from the battery, the weight comes from the battery, uh, and the battery, as you said, uh, includes uh, no, a great deal of, uh, of, of metals, as do our um, uh, cell phones, uh, as, as do all the electronics equipments today that today go at, uh, to waste. And there are a number of companies out there that are trying to make a business model out of it. So I think that's, that's very comforting. Um, and that's that entire circularity uh, that a number of businesses are looking at, from uh, from mining companies to uh, automotive to manufacturing. Uh, I think uh, some companies do it very well, and some are, are, are my clients. So I think it's really important, and they do it because they also not only do they see the value, uh, but also, of course, it, it's part of uh, of defining um, emissions. Uh, at the end of the day, no, that's what. That's why the supply chain matters, calculating, measuring 
the emissions across the supply chain matter a great deal. Um, and, and that's where partnerships alongside the, the value chain uh, matter a lot, is how to create that circularity. So we are making lots of progress. Uh, how much can be recovered today from a battery? Um, uh, no, quite a lot. How much is being recovered economically? Uh, in other words, with a proven uh, supply chains, uh, I'm not quite sure, but we are, no, we are, not, we are not there. Where, we are not where we should be, that's clear. But I think I'm pretty optimistic if I, uh, if I look at what uh, a number of companies uh, are doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So taking a little step back uh, to, to the miners and the the, the business models that uh, that the, that the big companies um, that you mentioned uh, are running. Um, you mentioned that they were driven by a kind of by a super cycle, uh, which kind of a boom and bust super, super cycle that ha happened a decade or so ago, driven largely by the demand in uh, large, large demand in China. And then kind of a kind of fiscal conservatism that came afterwards, where it's been more about preservation of capital rather than rather than you know large expenditures. Um, you also mentioned that it takes a very particular set of skills to be able to put together one of these, these super projects, and probably any of these 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 large large businesses could probably only do one at a time. Like it's not it's not that you know you've you've only got four, but they can be doing ten each. You're okay. No, I can probably only only be doing doing one at a time because they're so so complex. This seems like a pretty difficult nut to crack, where you've got a, a series series of businesses that are um, being fiscally responsible in, in in some in some sense by doing share buybacks doing dividends and under investing in a market as we're entering another super cycle like it doesn't seem to be it doesn't doesn't seem seem to fit like if you're in, if your business is going into a cycle where there's going to be an increase in demand the natural economic response suggests you're going to be investing to be right to be riding into this cycle mm. i just it's it's it, to me it 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 just defies economic logic and maybe you can explain that to me well uh, <laughs> well i'm a failed economist so i won't uh, i have the answer to to the question but uh, uh i think uh, the, the first thing to say that you no know, the uh, we have to we have to understand. I'm very convinced that uh, most of most businesses, most uh, companies, and most large and smaller companies, uh, but certainly you're talking about the mining sector, you know, are extremely well intended, are very purposeful, um, and have uh, all stakeholders uh, no, at heart. Uh, no, it's shareholders, it's employees, it's communities. I think that's very, very clear. Having living leave it from the inside, I think it's very, very clear. And there's no other choice if you want to be cynical, because that's part of your, that's part of reputation and that's part of uh, good business practices and that, that, at the end of the day, that, that creates value. Can they do better? Of course, you know, uh, the, the, the mining sector, as other sectors, have gone through uh, phases and I think everyone needs to find better ways of, uh, of, uh, of having a, a net positive impact. But that's the first point. The second point, I think, Capital allocation framework, as it's being embedded much better now by um, uh, by the large many companies, is no different than the capital allocation framework that I would expect uh, the best companies to apply. Uh, in other words, you have to reinvest new business uh, when it comes to maintenance, in particular, and we have to th think. Uh, that very large companies in mining but, or industrial companies or manufacturing have very, very large capital base that need maintenance, uh, need sustaining. So the first and foremost, you invest in a business to maintain your assets, to maintain the integrity of the assets, the quality and the efficiency. Uh, so that's where the bulk 
of the of the of the free cash flow is is, in, is reinvested, uh, and clearly they have to pay a dividend. I think that's what uh, that's what the, the shareholders are, are expecting, and uh, and one would one would uh, would uh, would want to differentiate the shareholder behavior in the UK uh, than in Australia than in the US. And I think it is, it's important to, dif to differentiate, in particular because some markets, and that's certainly the case of London Stock Exchange, are, are dividend markets rather than growth markets. Though there's more of an incentive towards uh, dividends than there is to growth, uh, and you and you you'll see it in the in the applying different corporate finance model in the in the in the, in the valuation of the of the company and in, in the in the share price in a sense. Um, and then, of course, you know there are, uh, you, you need to think in an iterative way of what creates most value. Is it to uh, repay debt? Is it to uh, uh, to provide uh, to uh, to do share buybacks, or is it to reinvest in the business? And there, you take a very simple. Um, well, it's not simple actually, but uh, you, <laughs> on, in finance terms, it's actually simple. It's you know what's the best rate of return, and it makes economic sense um, uh, to to that extent. So why why um, isn't more invested in growth? I think that's the right question. Um, and uh, well, number one, again, uh, history of what has happened over the last 10 years, certainly where the super boom was, uh, uh, the super cycle uh, you know, had a massive hangover and significant write downs of a number of assets and investments. So imposed uh, capital discipline certainly by, by the shoulders. That's number one. Number two, um, now, Australia and the UK are mostly dividend markets rather than growth markets. That's what shareholders value the most. And I think there's very much a discussion to be had around the structure of these markets, around the purpose of, uh, of uh, pension funds, around the investment policies, and also about uh, what uh, the policymakers can, can, can do to promote more growth through different mechanisms. And third, incentive prices. So what is it that's not happening? You know, why isn't copper uh, you know, at twice the price it is today? Why isn't aluminum at twice the price it, it is today? Uh, and to a large extent, that's driven by, uh, by short to medium term considerations. No, China is not expanding as, as, uh, as it used to. No, we are not talking about 8% growth per, per annum uh, or even 5%. We are talking about deflationary China now, which is impacted, impacting, in the first instance, investment decisions uh, where we are today. Uh, so. The final point is probably because the, uh, we, we have not seen the, the cracks of the deep bottlenecks and the worst of the, of the bottlenecks, I suppose, as of yet. But in my mind, no, mining is the new oil and gas in the next few years. In other words, uh, uh, for good or for bad, there will be much more focus on the mining industries in the next few years. Uh, but you know, it's not yet reflected on enough investments. Yeah, yeah. It's, if you're saying it's the, the structure of the market, the structure of essentially the owners, being the shareholders of the business, that are um, causing a short-termist view, it's, it's, if, if the miners um, are taking the view that the energy transition is real and it's, um, it's, it's a necessity and it will be driven by global policy, it's a pretty inevitable conclusion that you'll need them to be producing a lot more. And the lead time for these to get these these production assets online is long. Could it even be as cynical as saying, "Well, no, we'll just we'll wait until prices spike and then we'll invest"? But that's it. It just seems like you won't be in a position un unless you're just you're, you're focused on making your existing asset base more valuable rather than trying to lean into into fu future future markets. It's it, 
but that would suggest some sort of like uh, oligopolistic kind of conversations going on amongst amongst the majors, which is in no, a very competitive market, it's hard to imagine. No, I, I don't think that's happening. That's mm. that's not happening. I think uh, large uh, large companies and mining companies again are, you know, uh, we're talking about very very purposeful companies, very well intended. Mm. I mean, they take economic decisions. You know, mining is risky. It's mm. very very risky. Mm. Uh, you talk about some projects uh, that have a capex requirements in excess of ten billion dollars. Yeah. Um, now the, some some iron ore projects in West Africa have capex requirements of 25 billion dollars uh, potentially. Um, so uh, and and often these projects uh, uh, are delayed and it costs a lot a lot of money. So these are significantly big uh, investments among the largest in the world and and and, and risky. Uh, so, the, the 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 key the key reason why we're not going faster is because the risk is high and uh, the incentive price are not higher. There are other other reasons, as I mentioned, uh, and the stretch of the market, in particular London Stock Exchange, I think, is uh, is uh, is interesting to that to 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 that effect. Um, so I don't I, I don't think there is any any game being played by uh, by the businesses. No, no, quite the contrary. I think there's very well intention. And do you see that the whole kind of um, ESG sustainability framework that were that are like this perfectly understandably being being placed upon miners is slowing things down? Because I think that there's there's an inherent conflict there between we need to have stuff taken out of the ground as quickly as possible, but we also need to have it done in a in a way that is conscious and sustainable and you know we take which takes lots of time and consideration and and argue and you know inevitably some more costs well definitely uh you know you take a project like resolution copper in arizona in the in the states uh was gone through an approval process for the last i think um, two decades if i'm not mistaken um and that's no that's uh that delays things clearly, uh, and lots, lots of money uh, is being invested in the, in the meantime. Um, you, uh, engagement with communities is very, very important. Of course, again, mining companies are being hosted by communities and, and countries, so they have to to respect uh, that and make sure that they have a net positive impact, as they're trying very, very hard to to have not only during the development of a project. But also during the operations of a project, which of course lasts for decades. But then also thinking, after, uh, thinking about after the project when a, a specific mine site, uh, underground, overground, or processing plant will actually be decommissioned. And they do all of that. But it takes. We're talking about planning of a of a decades. So it, it by definition takes a long time. ESG, I think, is. Um, is is adding uh, is adding uh, uh, to the accountability. I think, and sh everyone should be welcoming it. You know, if, if there is one thing good out of ESG, which is necessary today, of course, it's the accountability framework that it provides. Um, so I think no one is shying away from it. Um, can we go faster? Could we get uh, quicker planning permissions? Can we get um, partners around the table and you know, really look uh, in, uh, in the, look in the same direction for, for the same business outcomes, which are also about all about sustainability? Yes, all of that needs to happen, and it's not happening uh, good, uh, well enough, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, if it's not big tech, then it has to be governments, um, and there's exactly. there's a lot of um, kind of geopolitical machinations in and around. And actually, be very interested to hear your viewpoint of it. The media does tend to lead on the idea that China controls the the, the, the mineral supply chain for the energy transition. 
And could you like tell us how true is that? Is there a grain of truth? Or is, it, is it bang on? Is it somewhere in between? Um, so the, I mean, China has been uh, moving at a very, very fast pace, pace from a macroeconomic point of view and social point of view for for the last uh, for the last three decades, really. Uh, so everyone knows that, but they've been also moving into uh, energy transition uh, for much earlier than anyone else at uh, at a much bigger pace. No, there are more more wind farms in in, in China than anyone else in the world combined. Right, I think. Uh, and I, and I think they have, uh, 10 years ago already, if not before, uh, had a very deliberate strategy around the rare earth elements and around also the, the, the processing of critical metals, uh, critical minerals, uh, I mean. Um, so, uh, so I think they, they, that's the first, point, thing, first thing to, to say. The second thing is they do, they do uh, have a relatively high control over the processing of critical minerals. I mean, that's, that's well known. Uh, they are at the same time very interdependent, interdependent with the with the with the West. No, they they need iron. You know, they are they are the largest consumer of iron, you know, the largest by far consumer uh, and importer of uh, of critical uh, metals, copper, uh, bauxite, um, uh, nickel, which then they process. Uh, so, but there, there's a strong interdependency. They consume agri agricultural products. They are very large importer of agricultural products, they, and they are also leaning a lot into technology and they have uh, they have developed a uh, battery uh, battery technology that is uh, that's probably the envy of the world to a large extent one would question as to why we would not copy uh, and now why would not rather partner uh, rather than reinventing the wheel um, so i think unfortunately we are in a, in a world where the geopolitical tensions have increased significantly and we are getting more disconnecting and maybe not talking enough uh, to each other, uh, but we have a lot, lots to learn from China. I think uh, they are really uh, embracing the, the transition in, a, in, a, in an incredible way and, uh, and investing a, a lot into it. Um, so uh, I think the interdependencies have to be recognized, and we need to find a way. And that's easy for me to say. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not a political leader, but to to re-enter into a dialogue that makes sense for everyone. Because at the end of the day. It's either lose-lose or win-win, right? There won't be winners and losers on the other side of the climate change disaster. Yeah, that's one thing we're all we're all united on, at least in theory. You know, we all we're all under the same sky, breathing the same air. Indeed, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which kind of leads on to, to the next point, which is the the internal um, sustainability of the processes. So when you are extracting, mm -hmm. um, it is like mine. There's no other way of saying it. Like mining is a dirty business. Like it's with with the best will and the best intention in the world, there is going to be biodiversity loss. There is going to be, unless you can absolutely decarbonize mm -hmm. a, a mine, there's going to there's going to be emissions. A lot of mines are in remote areas using a lot of like diesel. You're very very diff difficult to, um, to 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 decarbonize and um, and a lot of and there's a we talked about about deep, deep sea mining. Uh, touched on before. Also understand the pressure on the other side that you do need to be getting these minerals out. Um, taking the you know, onshore mining, um, do you think that there is the will, the capability of decarbonizing the processes sufficiently fast to offset from the damage that is done by excess, by, by extra mining? Um, to get the materials that we need for the energy transition. Mm. So I think uh, 
there's uh, there's nothing more uh, mind opener to visit a, a mining operation of a of a large mining company because you are absolutely uh, I suppose amazed by the, by the quality of the people by how caring the people are by how purposeful they are and by the amount of of effort supported by money that is being put in in mitigating uh, the impact of, of mining uh, and uh, and creating a sustainable future for communities as well as to rehabilitate a mine site once uh, it reaches the end of, it, of its life uh, and you can see it in the balance sheet of the mining companies if only you look at the provisions for rehabilitation they are in in the billions of dollars uh, at, at times in excess of 10 billion dollars so i think i think one cannot be um, underestimating the importance that uh, preserving, mitigating the impact uh, and uh, trying to leave a net positive footprint uh, that the mining companies have. I mean, they definitely, it's entrenched in the controls, entrenched in the culture, uh, entrenched in processes, and, uh, and also entrenched in the capital allocation framework. Can more be done? Absolutely. So um, I can't really comment on deep sea mining. I'm not uh, enough an expert on, on it. Uh, no, it raises a bit of a, of a concern to me. That's uh, that's for sure. Now the fact is that uh, you know, mining as a footprint, as as oil and gas, as as manufacturing, housing, and many other industries, probably a larger footprint. I mean, still in itself, I think it's six percent of the world emissions, uh, which is not mining, by the way, but it's uh, more downstream. Um, and so the question is, how fast uh, uh, is the decarbonization happening across the value chain? Um, and uh, no significant investments are being done to that effect. Have they come a bit too late? Potentially. Um, are they going fast enough? Probably not. But I think uh, there's significant effort being done to that effect. I think there's no debate in my mind, and I'm talking about the, you know, the top 10 mining companies, around the significant um, alignment between sustainability and strategy, sustainability and shareholder value uh, and long-term viability of the business mm. uh, based on sustainability and, redu and reducing the, the, the carbon footprint. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a very difficult conversation because there's, there's trade-offs um, across, the, across the board. Um, one you know, story that took an awful lot of uh, headlines was the, the Jukan Gorge uh, from uh, Rio Tinto and that's the particular incident which wasn't that long ago um, and caused you know, one legislation change in Australia which is which is great um, but it's it not before you know 4,000 years of human history was 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 taken out by mm. uh, a wish to get some more iron ore out of the ground and it's uh, now obviously the the fallback the blowback on uh, on Rio Tinto was 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 large uh, CEO uh, resigned various sub chairman resigned a few few other people uh, left have you seen kind of shifts in culture since then within Rio within the industry that might prevent something like that happening again because it's it, it it did no one any favors that it did the industry no favors and it did did did, did the business no favors did the people involved no favors did the local community did national heritage no favors it's yeah. it was a it was a disaster no matter what way you look at it yeah it was uh, it was a disaster it was a tragedy I mean it came a couple of years I think after the uh, the San Marco uh, tailing dams disaster also uh, in uh, in Brazil. Um, so I, w I was I was group treasurer at the time. Uh, so sitting in a in a in a in an in office in London uh, may seem quite far away from uh, 
from what happens in Western Australia. Um, but clearly, I think the, 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 everyone in the, in, the, in the business was was uh, was pretty affected, and I think there was genuine uh, genuine um, uh, sense of tragedy inside the company from uh, no, from the board to uh, to uh, the senior management to everyone uh, because because. Um, I think the company, and that would be the same for the other large many companies, which I'm not trying to defend, by the way. I'm just talking about it on, from a factual basis. Uh, really think they are, no, they, they, they care and they try to do the, uh, not the best. Uh, um, clearly, relationships with the, with communities is uh, no, uh, are absolutely paramount. Were they being handled in the best way? I think. One can look at the reports that have been issued, not only by the Austrian Parliament, but also by, by the company itself that issued the report, and by the by the uh, the, uh, the local uh, Aboriginal community also, to 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 get a sense for what went wrong. Uh, there are thousands of heritage sites in Western Australia and all over Australia that need to be better taken care of. Uh, this particular incident was probably more prominent because of the. Because how ancestrally it was and relatively large. Um, yes, I think uh, no, unfortunately it affected everyone. I think uh, as the company uh, learned from it, um, I'm sure they would say uh, yes, and I'm sure they would say they're trying hard every day to, to make sure it never happens again, and uh, they, they will have improved the, the processes and the accountability model to that effect. So, if we kind of, as we kind of move towards a conclusion, mm. I could zoom out a little bit again. I think one of the main themes we've been talking about is this yeah, structural inability to be pricing risk. Yeah, and mm. just the, the difficulties involved in there. And if we did price risk properly, we might like we'd have different outcomes, and the whole the whole market would, would frankly work work a bit better. Um, one of the kind of ways of thinking about risk that you you, you like to, to 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 advocate is the idea of resilience. Um, how can you, could you kind of give us your thesis on how kind of resilience can be used as a frame of thinking to be able to better understand and price risk? Yes, so I think, um, I mean, pricing risk is very hard, right? I mean, I work in a bank uh, and a great bank uh, for that with great, uh, great colleagues uh, who, you know, who, who try to always do a better job at uh, just, uh, you know, uh, identifying, assessing, uh, measure, uh, measuring and pricing risk. But it's, it's really hard. Some, some risks are, are easier to price than others. Uh, so that's the first thing to, to say. So uh, as per whether we are pricing climate risk well, no, the answer is clearly not. What's the right way of doing it? We're trying to find ways uh, and we, have, uh, we are developing some methodologies internally. Um, and, uh, and the debate uh, may sound quite intellectual at times, it is, but it has very practical implications around no, where, uh, no, where we should allocate our capital and uh, how we price um, our, our, our products and solutions for, for, for clients. Um, I think the, the, the topic of resilience is, uh, is, uh, is, is of a different nature because by, uh, by definition one would not be able to price resilience per se, but it comes from a different perspective. It comes from, uh, from a perspective of, of uncertainty rather than risk. It comes from a perspective of rather medium and long term rather than shorter term. Uh, and it comes from a perspective that uh, no, whatever happens, you'll still be you know, standing in your feet and, uh, and the business will, be, will still have the right business model and still be liquid and solvent uh, and will be able to, to carry on. So it takes, it takes a bit of a different thinking um, uh, and a number of companies are, pricing, are trying to price it and you know, I must confess I was trying with my team to do that in my previous company and we, 
we were, we were trying. Uh, have we succeeded? Uh, probably not. Um, but uh, there are tools that that uh, that serve you well. And I think number one is, of course, long-term viability statements uh, that are now um, uh, standard in the in the in the UK and other jurisdictions, in particular for publicly listed companies. And they 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 can take uh, the shape of purely a narrative around uh, where you see your business model. Um, uh, having uh, you know, resilience uh, issues, I suppose, over three to five years, five years' time, but also can take an, a quantitative approach using uh, stress tests and reverse stress tests, uh, and also um, also more tail uh, tail scenarios. You now, for example, you know, what if a piece of infrastructure is flooded? You now, what happens, and what it, what does it do to your business model? So, uh, I think. Uh, the other aspect to it is really trying to understand you know, what can go wrong based on a number of plausible scenarios. Uh, and uh, we are in a context where we need to think about it, and we might not be have, uh, we might not have been in that context five years ago uh, or ten years ago, for that matter. We are in that context because climate change is real, um, because um, uh, the risk to physical infrastructure. Is, is, is real because supply chain disruptions are happening and also because actually even in the context of higher inflation uh, which many people have not witnessed in their in their careers uh, no you you need to think about what it means for the for, for the business which you can price only to some extent so building resilience plans uh, is very, very useful. Uh, Long-term viability statements is only one piece of it. That's kind of pitching at the board level and for shareholders. But building in new operations and resilience plans is very, very useful. Not because the plan will be correct, but because it, it forces, uh, it forces a, a business to really think in terms of what-if scenarios and prepare accordingly. I mean, you're a strong advocate for the power of policy and government leadership uh, towards making kind of geosystemic changes. Um, is there a role that you can see for policy in in encouraging resilience? Um, so resilience is medium to long term. A policy, we would like to see it medium to long term too. Uh, as these two converge, and as we see in uh, in 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 some countries, uh, hopefully more of a long term thinking, more of a long term planning, more of a of a, of of uh, decisions, including uh, capital decisions or incentive decisions being taken for the long term, I think in itself that prepares better uh, businesses to think in, uh, around the same resilience uh, plans. Uh, I think that no, culturally the way we plan, the way we think is very important to drive behaviors across the board. I think uh, regulators have a, have a role to play. As I mentioned, long-term viability statements uh, are, are now a requirement for uh, FTSE 100 companies, uh, and I think 202, I mean, for publicly listed companies. Um, and it talks to only the, the next three or five years, you know, the resilience of the business model. Uh, but using uh, you know, the Byron report, which is uh, one of the key reports that talks about long-term viability of businesses as other 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 uh, leading uh, leading uh, thought leaders on the, on the on the topic i think we uh, creating that 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 conversation around what may go wrong over time i think is 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 quite important now credible transition plans that I referred to earlier on for me are also part of the resilience thinking um, because credible transition plans like any good plan should not be set in stone for 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 the next 5 years or 10 years has to be 
as to you know, without detriment to uh, to uh, actions and to accountability has to be adapting to what's happening in the world. Uh, and I think these conversations are not, are not uh, short-term conversations. Uh, no, at the minimum, 2030, <laughs> because we use this as a milestone, at the minimum, mm -hmm. and by the way, it's only six years ahead, six years, yeah. well, six or seven years in front of us. So I think these are the frameworks that we need to use to, uh, to talk about uh, uh, resilience, and it goes often beyond the life of a loan, if I talk in terms of bankers, uh, financing being only one of the tools we provide to, to, to our clients, of course, uh, or the solutions, you know, beyond the life of a loan, which often doesn't go beyond seven years, it can, but uh, you know, we need to think about what the business is doing to adapt. An excellent way to finish it. <laughs> but um, we, what we typically do is ask uh, one last question, which is uh, for a little bit of uh, advice. If we're looking at the area of resilience, what would your top tip be for somebody listening to this, watching this, uh, for having a resilient career? Well, the best advice is I can give are the ones I've, I'm borrowing from, uh, from, uh, from many others, uh, many great people I've met in my career in the different companies I've worked with, uh, for, and people I've worked with. Um, clearly, you know, as we, as the motto says, if we fail to prepare, we are preparing to fail, and that's very, very important always to you know to prepare well, to have a plan, and to be able to uh, to to be resilient around that plan, uh, which is to adapt uh, very, very quickly. I think um, pace is very important. Uh, no, at the end of the day, actions speak louder, and at individual level, uh, as well as at, at business level, at at company, at government level. What talks the loudest is, is us delivering on actions, performing on the day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and it has to be on the back of a strong value system. So I think we are all the more resilient as we prepare for the future all the time, uh, every day. Um, that, that matters also at the family level, at the personal level, uh, but also as we perform day in, day out. Action is the best theory. Um, and it can only make sense if it's out of a, out of a purpose, out of a very strong uh, value system, uh, which of course has to be around uh, respect, which has to be around uh, um, embracing diversity, which has to be about uh, no, trying to learn always from others, and it has to be about a culture of excellence. So uh, I think that's the advice I am borrowing for many conversations and from what I've learned over the last uh, many years. Mm. There's a huge amount of wisdom in mm. that. Thank you so much, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Really, really great conversation. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.